Hey, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Welcome to today's special show. We are wrapping up the first three-part installment of my new series, Forensics, Dr. Judy Investigates. For those of you who may not know, I'm both a clinical neuropsychologist and a forensic psychologist. That means I have expertise in applying my clinical knowledge and neuropsychological specialties to the legal arena. The practice of forensic psychology in my world usually involves evaluating individuals who are involved in one way or another with the legal system and then providing expert witness courtroom testimony on my findings, which include understanding the psychological underpinnings of a person's behavior, diagnosing any mental conditions, prescribing a treatment plan, and making predictions about their likelihood to benefit and recover from such a plan. In my new series, Forensics, Dr. Judy Investigates, I will delve into relevant legal cases, both past and present, and discuss specifically the psychological factors behind these cases, giving you practical takeaways to help you bolster mental wellness, assist others in need, and for all of us to live meaningful and fulfilling lives in our communities. Now, interest in forensic psychology has surged in recent years, and I think it's probably due to television shows like Criminal Minds and, of course, the surge of true crime series everywhere. And this is really interesting because forensic psychology is actually somewhat of a newer field in the general field of psychology, and it's still growing and having some growing pains as it's going through its development. The broad definition of forensic psychology emphasizes the application of research and experimentation in other areas of psychology, like clinical psychology and like neuropsychology, to the legal arena and to help with legal questions. Two great examples of this might include Elizabeth Loftus' many studies on eyewitness identification or Stephen Cece's research on children's memory, suggestibility, and competence to testify. So the practice of forensic psychology and maybe the most frequent duty of forensic psychologists is to conduct psychological assessments of people who are involved in one way or another with the legal system. And that's really what I do in my private practice as applied to legal cases. But oftentimes I get asked on TV to analyze cases that have shook the nation in different ways and to truly understand what drives people to do certain things. And in that arena, I work more so even in the criminal realm than the civil realm. And I can tell you a lot about some of what I've analyzed and some of the most interesting cases I've analyzed. It's really interesting that there are these common factors that affect many people who become serial killers. And especially when we look at differences between, for example, female and male serial killers. And those are oftentimes the questions I'm asked about. And when we think about the true crime arena, for the last several years, I've been asked to do hundreds of TV shows where we analyze and break down cases one by one, really understanding how this person who looks so charming, so amazing, such a stand-up person in the community can hide their 20, 30, 40 years of repeated crimes. So I want to go back to what this three-part series is about, because today we're finishing up behind the crime scene. This is all about the important themes explored in the hugely popular Netflix program, Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. 
For those of you guys who haven't seen this great program, it's directed by Emmy Award-winning and Academy Award-nominated director Joe Berlinger. It's a four-part docu-series framed around the disappearance and death of a young lady named Elisa Lamb at the CISO Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. To quickly summarize, Elisa Lam, a young college student who was traveling in California from Canada, was found dead in the water tank of the CISO Hotel in February 2013. She left behind an extensive collection of blog writings on Tumblr, and people really related to her and connected with her. Many lay people rolled up their sleeves and tried to solve the case along with law enforcement. Even when the official results revealed that she had accidentally drowned, people continue to have questions. For example, there is a change.org petition to reopen her investigation. It was last signed two years ago. There are thousands of articles and blogs devoted to the mysteries of her disappearance and death. People believe there was foul play or even a paranormal presence that took her life rather than an accident. These conspiracy theories are fueled by the fact that she was staying at the Cecil where people have died by suicide and where serial killers such as Richard Ramirez have stayed. In this three-part series, we've been exploring the psychology of why this fascinating case has gripped the nation. And in the first episode, I discussed main themes of the case. In the second episode, I had an exclusive interview with the incredible director of the series, Joe Berlinger. And now I'm going to answer all of the questions from you that have been pouring in about this case and finish this episode up with a foolproof mental health bolstering plan. So stick around. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Thank you so much for submitting so many excellent questions. I have gotten so many questions from all of you for the last few weeks, and it's obvious from the sheer amount of questions that I'm receiving that this case continues to fascinate you. So let's take some time and dig into what you want to know. First, I got a lot of questions about forensic psychology. What is it and what kind of cases do I work on? What is it I like about the work? So let's start there. As I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, most of my work and the most frequent duty of many forensic psychologists is to conduct a comprehensive assessment of people who are involved in the legal system. I really enjoy working on all of my cases because it's kind of like solving a puzzle and in a way that is going to be helpful for people. So I try to dig into why somebody might conduct a certain behavior, why somebody might be suffering a certain mental condition, and also what might actually help them to feel better. And that's the part that I really love to do is really looking for solutions. But before we get to solutions, we have to understand the problem. And in my role as a forensic psychologist, I help to really dig into all of the different clues, records, any kind of data that I can get my hands on so that I can thoroughly understand an individual. This sometimes might include interviews from family members. It could include depositions and courtroom testimonies of the individual who I'm evaluating. It could include the individual's school records, medical records, eyewitness accounts about the person. 
And of course, as a neuropsychologist, I conduct my own testing. I essentially do my own research, my own case-by-case study of every single person that I evaluate. And that really is a part of my job I love to do. I love to be able to apply the expertise to gather all this information and essentially to put on my investigative hat, but from a psychology point of view. And one of the other things I really love about working as a forensic psychologist is that I get to collaborate with so many different people from all walks of life and from all types of expertise. Aside from working with attorneys, I work with other types of physicians and doctors. I work sometimes with investors. Investigators, I work with probation officers. I work with whoever I need to work with so that I can do my evaluation in the best way possible and try to bring light to whatever question the person was referred to me about. In the criminal arena, a lot of times this has to do with is this person competent to testify? Do they understand their criminal charges? Is there any kind of mitigating factor that got in the way? of their thinking and their decision-making that would lead them down this path of criminality? And can they truly be reformed? Is this a person who feels sorry for what they did? And do you think if we gave them treatment, they would be able to go back into society, be productive, and hopefully not end up having recidivism? That's always the toughest question to answer because we can't always 100% predict what somebody is going to do. But we do our best because we obviously want to balance this idea of giving a criminal perhaps a second chance if we believe that they really deserve that, but at the same time protecting the community and protecting the rest of society. And that can be a really tough balance to achieve. So those are some of the things that I love most about forensic psychology work. I think it's exciting, it's intellectually stimulating, and it can also be helpful. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the other questions that I've been getting. I've been getting a ton of questions about cyberbullying. If you remember the death metal musician Morbid, he was cyberbullied when people thought that he had something to do with Elisa Lam's death. And last week, when I interviewed director Joe Berlinger, he talked about being distressed that after the Netflix show aired and after the fact that one of the clear themes of the show was a cautionary tale about jumping to conclusions that the internet sleuths who were featured in the show, who had nothing to do with the people who bullied Morbid, were in turn being cyber bullied themselves. Here's a reminder of what Joe had to say about that last week. I'm deeply distressed that some of the other uh, you know, web sleuths in the show are getting cyber bullied, which is so ironic because, I mean, the whole... In a show in which one of the main themes is a cautionary tale about jumping to conclusions and cyberbullying people, for people to then jump to conclusions and cyberbully people is a little distressing. So let's get into the psychology behind cyberbullying. Why is it so prevalent and why is cyberbullying even affecting adults? I think sometimes we think about this idea of bullying and we relate that to children. We relate that to being in high school, being in grade school, being horrifically teased by a certain group of people in your school. But actually, cyberbullying is really prevalent among adults. And I think part of the problem with cyberbullying and why it is so prevalent is that people can hide behind their screens. They can get out their anger and frustration. Perhaps it's not even at 
the victim who they're bullying. It's at something else. And cyberbullying really includes all different types of elements. But I think the three core elements are that it's unwanted, aggressive behavior, including verbal aggressive behavior, an observed or perceived power balance so that the bullying person is somebody who maybe has social clout or they have enough number of followers that people are reading their blogs or their posts and a repetition to that behavior that it's not just one time, but that they're consistently going after their victims to try to harass them. And the research on bullying is pretty startling. We learned that bullying affects pretty much all youth, including those who are bullied, those who bully others, and those who witness bullying. And it also shows that sometimes bullying prevention doesn't necessarily work the way that we want it to. Sometimes people are tuning out that conversation. People are sometimes making excuses for what they've done if it looks like cyberbullying. And I think one of the things that we need to be sure of is as adults, we should try to set a better example and understanding sometimes when our behaviors start to skirt that line. And it just becomes so easy now because we hide behind our screen and we never have to see the reaction of the person who's looking back at us and being hurt by our comments. And I think that there's been a problem of decreased empathy, which is something that Joe also spoke about during my interview with him. So I think the answer to ending cyberbullying, or at least reducing it, is to start putting yourself in other people's shoes. Imagine saying whatever you were going to type on your computer or on your phone. Imagine the person being in front of you and actually looking at you and making eye contact with you as you're saying these things. Would you still say them in the same way? I think that if we're able to even just ask ourselves one simple question like that and be able to use that visualization technique, we'd probably be able to stop ourselves before we said something that is going to cause a lot of harm to another person and eventually maybe to ourselves because sometimes people don't just stand for that cyberbullying. They'll turn around and they'll also start to be angry and resentful towards you. And I think that we can all take a step back and really understand where that's coming from and be able to do something more proactive and kind instead. There were several questions that I got specifically about this case, issues that people still felt unresolved about. So first, I was asked many times, how does she end up in the water tank? And how could she have lifted that tank on her own? Was the lid actually open or closed because there was some mixed messages in the media? Well, it's very interesting because if you look at the declaration of the hotel worker, his name was Santiago, he discovered her body and he wrote a declaration that essentially when he found her, the lid was open. Unfortunately, there was a mix up in the media because some of the first messages that the LAPD had discussed was that the lid was closed. That was a misquote. And we know this because Santiago not only wrote this in his declaration, it's under the threat of perjury. So he's saying this is my absolute truth, but also he talked about it again in the documentary. So I think that now we know for sure that the lid was open. And that makes sense if she had gotten herself because people ask, well, if she got in herself and there was no foul play, how could she close the lid on herself when she was in? And she didn't. The lid was open. 
As for how she ended up in the water tank, I believe that because she was suffering a manic episode with psychotic features and because she had a history of being fearful that people were coming after her during her psychotic episodes, that maybe that's what she believed in her last days at the hotel. And she perhaps climbed into the tank because she thought it would be a good place to hide at that moment. Of course, when she got in, she was unable to get out, especially because the water was being used by people in the hotel. And so the water levels kept dropping and dropping and dropping until she could not reach the top anymore and pull herself out. And in fact, if you look at the deposition transcript of the lead investigator, his name is Detective Tanil, he says that by the time he had arrived on site and saw where the water level was, it was actually six feet below the top. And that would be very hard for anybody to be able to climb out because remember, there's no ladders inside that water tank. I also got some questions about whether she could have lifted the lid of the tank on her own. People were saying how heavy it was. The water tank lid looked really big, but there's a hatch on all of the water tanks and the hatch itself is only 18 by 18. This is something that the lead investigator, Detective Tanel, talked about in his deposition. And he said that it has a lid. It's not on hinges. You can take it off and you can move it to the side. And the hatch is about 20 pounds. So most people can lift 20 pounds. And I'm sure you've lifted 20 pounds before in your own house, or even sometimes when you're carrying two bags of groceries, that could be 20 pounds easily. So it wasn't actually as heavy as people thought it was going to be. So it's definitely something that is within reason that somebody of Elisa's size, that she could have lifted something of that weight. So I want to talk about some of the questions that I got about the viral video footage. This is what started it all. People started to go down these conspiratory paths because they looked at this footage of Elisa in the elevator and it was fascinating to them because sometimes it looked like she was acting really oddly. Other times she looked like she was being playful. Other times she looked like she was fearful and hiding. And even other times she looked like she might've been talking or gesturing to somebody off camera. People had so many questions and ideas about what these behaviors meant. All of the pushing buttons in the elevator. What was this? Was this a Korean elevator game that was meant to take you to another portal or dimension? Was all of those buttons that she was pushing, was that because she was trying to get the elevator to move because it wasn't moving? Well, in the documentary, they actually looked closely at what buttons she pushed. And in fact, she actually pushed the button that would actually hold the elevator open for two minutes. So now the theory is that while she was maybe in that frantic state of mind, she pushed all of these different buttons. Maybe she was trying to get away and she accidentally also pushed the door hold button. There were also people who asked me what was with all of these hand movements that she was doing. She stepped outside the elevator at one point and she was gesturing with her hands. And people were wondering if she was gesturing as somebody who was off camera or if she was trying to conjure something. These were people who were maybe believing more in the paranormal theories. Well, actually, those extra hand movements are pretty typical when somebody has a manic episode with psychotic features. One of the significant features of such an episode is psychomotor agitation. And this is defined as a series of unintentional and purposeless motions that stem from the mental tension and anxiety of an individual. Some of these behaviors include pacing, wringing hands, uncontrolled tongue movements, uncontrolled hand and leg movements, and other similar actions. 
Again, psychomotor agitation is a symptom of mania. Of course, we weren't there and we don't know exactly what she was going through, but the hand movements that she was exhibiting is definitely consistent with what I've seen when people are suffering from a manic episode with psychotic features. There were some remaining toxicology questions too. People wanted to know if it was possible that somehow she was wandering around Skid Row and maybe she was drunk or maybe she got her hands on some illicit substances. Well, it's important to point out that in the toxicology report, it showed that she actually had no illicit substances in her system whatsoever. And also she wasn't drinking alcohol. So those are not the reasons for why she was behaving in the odd ways that people had observed. In fact, they tested the blood in her heart for marijuana, cocaine, MDMA, barbiturates, opiates, and amphetamines. All of them came up not detected. And this actually means that she hadn't even taken her medication that was supposedly for her ADHD, which was dexedrine, recently. So what we know from the toxicology report to summarize, it looks like she took at least one of her antidepressant medications that day, that she might've taken her mood stabilizer recently, but not on the day of her death. And she certainly had not taken her antipsychotic anytime recently. So as I mentioned in episode one, when people do not take their mood stabilizers regularly and they're not taking their antipsychotics and they're under immense stress, it's going to provoke the risk of having another manic episode, which is part of her condition with somebody who has bipolar disorder. So let's get to the subject of conspiracy theories. You had so many thoughts and ideas about this, and I want to talk about the psychology behind why conspiracy theories exist. Why do people connect these coincidental happenstances, and what meaning does it provide in their life? And I want to start by saying that there's actually science behind why people latch on to conspiracy theories. The tendency for people to reach for conspiracy theories as a way to cope is something that has been documented for decades. There is a true allure of conspiracy theories in a chaotic world. When we are feeling distressed, dysregulated, overwhelmed, we are much more likely to use cognitive shortcuts. These are largely unconscious rules of thumb to make decision-making faster. And unfortunately, this leads to a lot of misperceptions. It sometimes even leads to discrimination and stereotypes and all of those things that cause us to judge things too quickly. Now, remember I said that when I spoke to Joe, he told me that one of the main themes of this docuseries is a cautionary tale about not jumping to conclusions. And yet, human beings, we use these cognitive shortcuts to manage our life, especially when we have too much going on. So when people are experiencing a lot of stress or a sense of disorder in their lives, or people who just do better when things are a bit more black and white and they can have cognitive closure, some of these people might be more prone to entertaining conspiracy theories at certain times in their life. Now, a recent poll has found that more than 50% of Americans reported increased stress during the pandemic. And so Admit all of this stress and unease, 
it's really not that surprising that we're seeing a spike in conspiracy theories now, but certainly it is not the only time that our culture, that us as a people have entertained conspiracy theories. They've always been around. There's still a significant portion of people who would admit that they have entertained a theory that doesn't actually bear out with facts. And aside from believing the misinformation as a way to cope, as a way to get closure, as a way to organize your life and understand a phenomenon that you can't understand otherwise, there's also another interesting factor that plays a role. And this is a factor called collective narcissism. This is a group's inflated belief in its own significance. And it's an interesting phenomenon discussed by experts that when people who have certain beliefs about failure, that failure is to be avoided at all costs, that really that kind of predicts the value of who you are as a human being, that when they perceive a failure in their lives or they perceive members of their group failing, that they will look to conspiracy theories to deal with the psychological and emotional threat posed by that failure and them having to reconcile that and still feeling good about themselves. So it's interesting that even that type of phenomenon could play a role. Now, of course, this doesn't explain why every single conspiracy theorist does what they do. I believe that there's also an element where people want to help. It comes from a really good place. And also it helps to boost their self-esteem if they actually can be the person, the special person who finally solves this mystery that has been plaguing everyone. But I just want to point out that a lot of times people start going down these paths of entertaining conspiracy theories, either from a very loving and caring perspective or from a coping mechanism perspective. And so they're just trying to emotionally survive on their own. And again, bring back that theme of cyberbullying. I hope that these explanations of why they do the things they do will show you that it's not just a fringe group of people that might do this sometimes. It might be people you know, it might even be you yourself. And just like all human beings, they all still deserve compassion. So I hope that that clears things up a bit more. I also got a lot of questions specifically about bipolar disorder. Why is there so much stigma? What is the usual onset? What can we learn from Elisa's story? And I just want to say that bipolar disorder is thought to be a severe mental health condition. So depression and anxiety, even though they still carry their own stigma, it feels more commonplace to people. But bipolar disorder, like conditions like schizophrenia, they tend to be widely misunderstood and people have these beliefs that people who have bipolar or schizophrenia are dangerous in some way. We actually don't have that bear out in the evidence, but that's what people perceive. And that's what causes sometimes people to hide it and to not talk about it because they're afraid and also aware of the community stigma that can be placed upon them. The usual onset for bipolar disorder is generally in someone's late teens to mid twenties. And that onset is generally even earlier for boys than for girls. So it is something that has a 
genetic or familial contribution that's pretty significant. If you have an individual in your family who has either bipolar or schizophrenia, you are more likely and more at risk to develop some symptoms and traits of it. But everybody is, of course, on a spectrum. We have people who have bipolar disorder one, and those are the people who experience these more significant episodes of psychosis, where they have beliefs of persecution, and they may even see things or hear things that aren't there. And then we have people who have the milder form of bipolar, which is bipolar disorder too. These are people who every three or four months, or maybe even once a year, they have a few days where they feel a bit more amped up. They're a little bit more grandiose. They have a lot of goals for themselves. They sleep a little less, but generally they don't have psychotic symptoms. They're not necessarily impulsive and they don't do a lot of risk-taking. Either way, when people have these ups and downs and they feel like they're out of control with that, it can cause them a lot of distress. And that causes a self-stigma that might preclude them from getting the care that they need, from sticking to the treatment plan, and reaching out to the community when they're not feeling well. So that's one of the most important reasons for us to try to work on the stigma, because we know that stigma prevents people from getting the care that they need and from reaching out for support, which is so important for somebody's well-being. And I think if we can start to demystify bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and understand that they are treatable conditions like depression and anxiety, as long as people stay on their medications, go to evidence-based treatment, they can have really fulfilling and meaningful lives and they can control the number of episodes that they experience across their lifetime, I think we'll start to be able to make some headway in this direction. People also wanted to know, what is a psychotic break? I know I've been using that term a lot, psychotic episode or psychotic break. So people wanted to know, what causes it? And why does it happen? Now, we're still learning a lot about how and why psychosis develops, but several factors are likely to be involved. We do know that teenagers and young adults are at increased risk of experiencing an episode of psychosis because of hormonal changes in their brain during puberty. And there are several factors that can contribute to psychosis. As I mentioned earlier, genetics do play a role. And many genes can contribute to the development of these symptoms. But just because a person has a gene that elevates their risk doesn't mean that they are going to experience psychosis. We're going to be doing so many more studies over the next decades that will help us understand specifically which genes play a role in psychosis and how. Trauma experiences can also contribute to psychosis. A traumatic event like death, war, or sexual assault can certainly trigger a psychotic episode because of the immense stress. The type of trauma in a person's age will affect whether that traumatic event will result in psychosis. Generally, if you're more in that range where psychotic breaks happen, again, late teens to mid-20s, that might amplify your risk versus if you experienced trauma in your 60s. Substance use can absolutely cause a or lead to a break where the use of marijuana, LSD, amphetamines, and other substances, it can increase the risk of psychosis in people whose brains are already vulnerable to it. So certain brain chemistries, they are just much more sensitive to the effects of substances. Maybe they had some type of psychotic illness in their family and didn't know it. And the first or second time that they tried an amphetamine, it resulted in a psychotic break. Whereas sometimes for other individuals, maybe they've dabbled in certain substances throughout their lives and they've never had a psychotic episode. It's not fair, but the substance use factor is amplified if there is a familial risk or maybe a neurocognitive risk. Physical illness or injuries is another factor. Things like traumatic brain injuries, brain tumors, strokes, HIV, and other brain diseases like Parkinson's, 
Alzheimer's, and dementia can also sometimes lead to psychosis. And finally, mental health conditions. Psychosis is a symptom of conditions that we've been discussing, like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, but also very severe depression can sometimes have a risk for psychotic illnesses as well. And finally, I wanted to address this question about grief and dark tourism. So since this docuseries became live on Netflix, people are talking about wanting to stay at the Cecil, which is now called Stay at Maine. They're flocking to book a room there. They're driving past there. They're taking pictures and posting them on Instagram. And I actually saw a similar phenomenon at the Coronado Hotel in San Diego. I used to live there when I was a graduate student in the larger San Diego area. And I remember that the Coronado Hotel was said to be haunted. And amazingly, the reservations for Halloween are over 10 years ahead. It was literally booked up for a decade at a time. So why do people do this? Are they a glutton for punishment? Are they actually seeking paranormal activity and okay with the fact that if these ghosts exist, that they may be exposing themselves to something terrible and nefarious? Well, actually, grief and dark tourism has its roots, again, in people trying to make sense of their lives, dealing with existential crises, dealing with their own mortality, and in a way, establishing control over that process. If you can go to a place where terrible things have happened to people and people have died, and you look death in the face, sometimes people report saying that they feel empowered by that experience, that it helped them to come to terms with their own eventual and unavoidable deaths. And people sometimes utilize that as almost a way of exposure, exposing themselves to death themes, but in an entertaining way, if you can even call it that, that because it's on their terms, and of course there's all kinds of different types of travel agencies that actually sell these types of tours, they can go into it in a lighthearted fashion and still be able to deal with some of these darker themes that might plague their own psyche and their lives. So it's not so much that these people are there to gloat about bad things that have happened to other people. It's that they're looking, once again, just like some conspiracy theorists, for a way to cope with their own stress. They're trying to find a way to reestablish control, to explain why bad things happen, to look death in the face and say, I've conquered it. And that, I believe, is the true underlying factor behind why so many people seem to flock to grief and dark tourism, but also in some ways why people flock to true crime as a genre. Speaking of coping mechanisms, we are going to get to my supercharged plan for strengthening your mental health next. All right, guys. Well, I hope I've answered some of your burning questions about everything having to do with the Netflix series, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. But I definitely want to end this series by giving you a plan to empower yourself to strengthen your mental health. As the COVID-19 global health disaster continues to unfold across the world, there have been calls everywhere to address this associated mental health public crisis. And of course, there are resources being produced every day. There are mental health workers working hard to make sure that they take care of their own mental health and the mental health of others. But I want to make sure that I give you some tips so that you 
can bolster your own mental health every day and also help educate your loved ones who might be suffering at this time. Now, mental health is something that cannot be taken for granted. I think a lot of us know that now, seeing how long we've been in a state of distress and trying to find our ways out and trying to feel like every single day that there's something to look forward to, that you can still have hope. And the good thing is there are a lot of great scientific tips to help you strengthen your mental health at any time, no matter where you're starting from. Whether this is one of the worst days you've experienced or one of your best, there's something that you can do to help yourself. So I'd like to go through eight areas that I want you to focus on in order to bolster your mental health. And my supercharged plan and my supercharged prescription of the day is that you choose one area every single day to focus on. You might not be able to get to all eight areas, but if you can focus on just one every single day, you will see a significant difference in your life. The first area, and one of the first ones I think you should definitely start with, is having more awareness and mindfulness to your thoughts and feelings. Oftentimes, we don't realize that we're stressed until it's too late. We're already overwhelmed. But if we just stopped and paid more attention to how we're feeling and what we're thinking, you'll notice that like those monsters under the bed when you were little, it's not really that scary when you look. So a practical way to implement this is just to take a moment in the morning, check in with yourself and ask, what am I thinking right now? How am I feeling right now? Doesn't even mean you have to do anything about it. Even if you notice a negative thought or a negative feeling, it doesn't mean that you have to rush to address it. The most important thing is that you bring awareness to it, that you make contact with it, and you don't avoid it. Because avoiding it leads to avoidance coping, and that can cause more stress over time. The second area I'd like you to focus on is creating meaning every day. We are a society built on goals, checklists, to-do lists, bucket lists. The list that we have goes on. But most importantly, it's important that we connect with our values. What is truly important to us and what's going to make us feel like we're leading meaningful lives, even if it means that you're not checking off everything on your to-do list today. So find ways to really make contact with meaning every single day. That may mean that you take a beat and think about what's really most important to you today. Is it your family? Is it learning something new? Is it your spirituality? Is it establishing a sense of adventure or community? Whatever that top value is for you today, do something in service of that value. That will help you to feel calm, to feel good even in a day where you were overwhelmed and didn't get to do everything on your to-do list and give you a sense of pleasure and joy even during stressful times. The third area is finding adaptive coping. I just talked about avoidance coping. That's where we try to push something away by doing something that'll distract us. It feels good in the moment, but over time it might cause problems. Some examples of avoidance coping are drinking too much alcohol, watching too much streaming TV, oversleeping, gambling, even sometimes working too much. Adaptive coping is something that helps you to manage your distress in the moment, but also has positive long-term consequences. Some simple examples of adaptive coping, taking 10 deep breaths when you're stressed, 
giving time to self-care every weekend where you just do something for yourself to decompress and to relax, journaling your thoughts, doing a mindfulness activity, meditating, exercising, the list goes on. Remember the key is that it's something that helps you to manage the stress in the moment, but it doesn't cause you to run away from your problems. And it actually then also has long-term positive consequences instead. The fourth area is self-compassion and destigmatization. I've been talking a lot about how much work we still have to do to destigmatize mental illness. I know that we've come a long way and I'm so grateful for it, but I know that we still have more work to do to prevent the types of tragedies that Elisa Lam experienced. It's important that as a society, we understand that mental illness does not mean that somebody is weak, that there's something wrong with their character, and that we help people who are struggling with that understand that concept as well. And part of this is really educating ourselves on what mental illness really is. They're medical conditions, just like any other medical condition, like diabetes, like chronic heart disease. And we would never hesitate to treat those conditions, nor would we judge somebody for having those conditions. So I like us to apply that medical lens to psychological issues as well. It's important that we equal the playing field and we don't think that psychological problems are willful on the part of the person, that they deserve our compassion and they deserve not to be judged by the rest of society. Whether or not you're somebody who struggles with the occasional anxiety or depression, or you're somebody who actually has a clinical condition, make sure to take some time to exercise self-compassion. And one of my favorite activities to do this is the loving kindness meditation. I did an episode where I actually demonstrated a loving kindness meditation, and you guys should check that out. I'll make sure to link that in the show notes below, but you can also Google loving kindness meditation. There are a number of free ones on YouTube out there. The fifth area is taking in gratitude, awe, and acknowledging the good. When you focus on these elements, it really helps you to have a more balanced view of what's going on. Having gratitude is not about viewing everything through rose-colored glasses. It's only about acknowledging the good in your life. My favorite activity is to, when I wake up, just say out loud or write it down one thing you're grateful for. Some days they could be really big things, really exciting things. Other times they're small things. Like I'm glad I woke up this morning. I'm glad that I woke up and I didn't have any symptoms of COVID. I'm glad that I woke up and I had good sleep. No matter how small, the conscious effort that you take to acknowledge the good in your life will really help to boost your mood and to help you to feel hope. And take some time to experience awe experience what this amazing world has to offer. That really helps me if I just step out into nature and I just look at the sun, I look at the trees, and I just think about how amazing it is that we live in this beautiful place, that nature is so beautiful. And I've talked to many people who work on this concept of awe. It's really important for well-being and that people generally connect with it most in nature. So spend a couple of minutes in nature and really take it in, really understand the magnitude of the world that we live in. The sixth area is to foster positive experiences every day. Research shows that it's sometimes not about the negative events that you experience throughout the day, but it's about the positive experiences that you also experience. So create those positive moments for yourself. 
There are various types of additions of what we call the positive activities list. This is a cognitive behavioral therapy technique where essentially it's just a list of 50, 100, even 200 items, activities that you can do to boost your mood, even for just a couple of minutes. A lot of them are really simple, like lighting a candle, taking a bath, cuddling up to a blanket, calling somebody you care about. They're simple yet effective. And if you arm yourself with these lists, whenever you feel like you're having a tough day, just make sure you spend a few minutes and do something that can help you to develop and expose yourself to a positive experience. And do it as prevention too. When you do take breaks throughout the day from your chores, from your responsibilities, from work, just make sure that a couple of times a day you're doing something from these positive activity lists. I have one on my website too, and I'll link to that below. The seventh area is high quality connections. It is not about the size of your social circle. It is about the quality and the connection that you have with them. So really take time to build that. It takes time to develop quality connections. You have to invest in the relationship and then they'll give that back to you. So make sure you make time to connect with people, no matter how busy you are. I know it's hard during COVID because we're not used to the usual ways that we like to spend time with people, but get creative. Think about ways that you can still create these meaningful, high quality connections with the most important people in your life. You can just decide to focus on one relationship at a time. Don't get overwhelmed that you have to include everyone in your social circle all at once. If you decide to honor one relationship today, who would that be and what would you do for them? If you take a attitude of what can I give to that person? Trust me, it's going to come back to you many times over and that relationship will thrive. And finally, the last area to focus on is reestablishing control in your life. When there's a lot of chaos, when there's a lot of stress, people have a difficult time thinking about this concept of feeling in control. And that's very important for our well-being. We want to feel like we're masters of our own universes to some extent. So there's a lot that we can't control, and that's just a truism of life. But what's an area that you can have control over? Is it when you get to bed? Is it if you take a walk outside? Is it the food that you put in your mouth, making sure that it's nourishing and healthy? Find an area in which you can control what's happening and do it. The more that we can create those types of moments for ourselves, the more we can feel that we are equipped to tackle anything. The more we feel that resilience is building and the more confident you'll be whenever you experience another state of stress again. I want to invite you guys to take my 40 day mental wellness challenge. I'm going to link to that in the show notes below. This is a set of activities that I've created that actually touch on these eight areas I talked about to strengthen your mental health. If you take this challenge with me, definitely hit me up on social media. I want to know how you're doing. And to close, if you have a mental health condition, you're not alone. One in five American adults experience some form of mental illness in a given year. And across the population, one in every 20 adults is living with a serious mental health condition. Schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, like any serious mental illness, is not your fault or that of the people around you. And if you feel like you need resources and support, start by going to this great website. It's the National Alliance on Mental Illness at NAMI, that's N-A-M-I dot org. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me on Instagram at Dr. Judy Ho. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. 
and take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. I'm Dr. Judy, and remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical, psychological, or professional advice. Do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For medical, psychological, or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician, a psychologist, or other trained professional. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.